0: Welcome to the Patriotic Pulpit. We have two basic topics on the table today that we want to talk about. Number one is education, and we're going to take a look at an announcement that the TEA made regarding the Houston Public Schools, the Houston ISD. And then number two, we're going to talk about ESG, that is environmental, social, and governmental standards that are being pressed upon companies by the Securities and Exchange Commission. What this means, what it portends, and what is involved in it. So let's get started regarding education. You know, we've talked about educational woes before. As a matter of fact, we've talked about educational woes in the last several programs. I want to continue in the same vein of thought. There's so much to be said on this particular topic. But this week, this last Wednesday, it was announced by TEA, Texas Education Association, or agency, rather, that it will take over for the Houston public schools, the Houston ISD. So let's get into it for just a moment. They plan to install state-appointed managers in place of the Houston Independent School District's elected school board. The education and is named Mike Morath, he assured the Houston public media that this decision does not reflect, now note this, does not reflect on the hardworking teachers and staff of Houston ISD. Hinting that more money is needed, Morath noted that there are many students in Houston that are truly flourishing, but there are also a large number of students in Houston who have not been given the supports necessary to succeed. Not given the supports necessary. That sounds like they need more money. That's interesting. We'll come back to that in just a little bit. Morath also described the Houston ISD superintendent Millard Hussell, as a student-focused man of integrity, but that he will be replaced. So the TEA takeover simply means the state NGC will control the budget, school closures, collaboration with charter networks, policies, curriculum, library books, as well as hiring and firing the superintendent, among other important decisions. So let's think about why is TEA stepping in? Now, they've already told us that it's not about the teachers. It's not about the students. It's not about the superintendent. Well, what is it about them? Well, I want to say, first of all, these low-performing schools hardly are ever about the teachers. I can't think of that. The teachers are some of the hardest-working individuals and some of the lowest paid individuals in society, they are hardworking. Sometimes, and this is the case on many occasions, the teachers are harder working than the students. And it begins to be a flip-sided thing where you think, well, I'm working harder as a teacher to get my students to be passing than my students are. I care more than, about them passing than my students care about passing. And that's exactly the case in so many school districts and in so many schools. So it's not about the teachers, and I'm going to be the first to say that's exactly what I believe to be the case. It's not about the teachers. Neither is it about, and I don't know, the Houston ISD superintendent. I don't know him, Millard Husell, but apparently he's a great superintendent, man of integrity. It's not about him either. They also tell us it's not about the students. The students have been given this the supports they need. They say, well, they might need some more support, but they say the teachers and the students are hardworking. So there are many students that are flourishing, but the truth of the matter is that there are many students that are not flourishing and we need to take a look at it for just a few moments. Why is TEA taking over control? The takeover, according to the article, is primarily due to years of low standardized test scores and postgraduate performance at, for example, Wheatley High School, one of the district's 280 campuses in 2019. Although there are some schools in the Houston district that are high-performing, schools like Wheatley and Kashmir struggle year after year after year. State Assistant Solicitor General Kyle Heifel told Texas Supreme Court Justices last October, He said, if you're a student at one of the low-performing schools, it doesn't help you to know that elsewhere in the district, there's a school that's doing great. And the commissioner believes that every student should have access to a quality education. Now, right here, I'm going to take some issue with him. That implies that students are not being given a quality education. But we are already told, and I believe it, that the teachers are hardworking. I've seen these kind of things through public schools, Continually in my adult life, the teachers are hardworking. Some of the hardest working people, as I've noted, it's not about that they don't have quality teachers and quality education in that respect. Not only so, but low-performing schools. And for example, Wheatley High School in Houston is one of those low-performing schools. Low standardized test scores. They have the highest percent, or some of the highest percentages. Of special education students. I think the figures are something like 20% of the students at Wheatley High School are special education. Now, what does that mean? That means they're a Title I school. That means they receive much more money than many other schools receive. That's the same thing, whether it be in Wichita Falls, the same thing in it, wherever you are in Dallas, Fort Worth, El Paso, whether it be in Houston, Austin whether in Fort Worth, it doesn't matter where you are. The schools that are low-performing and the schools that have high number of special education students, they receive much more money than schools that are high-performing. We're pouring more money into that, so it's not about more money. Incidentally, we mentioned on the program last week, just to reiterate, in Washington, D.C., for example— The schools received more money per student than any district in the entire country of the United States, in the entire country of the United States. Washington, D.C. schools received more money per student than any district, and yet they have some of the lowest scores. Chicago, same thing, they receive a lot of money, but they have. As we noted last week, no students meeting the bar of the standardized tests at high school level. None. Zero. Math and science absolutely failing. What, what is going on? What is the problem here? Well, the Wheatley High School has this breakdown in demographics. It serves 460 African-American students, 403 Hispanic students, three Asian students, and three white students, 94% were classified as economically disadvantaged. Now, what does that mean? Well, that means economically disadvantaged, they're providing them free breakfast, free lunch. In the summertime, they send, perhaps, as they have in many districts, send supper homes to the kids. They pay for their, not only education, but the meals as well. So what what is going on here? Education Commissioner Morath stated, most minorities start from behind. Now, I want you to hear this. Most minority students start from behind. And starting from behind means you have to catch up. And you're playing catch up for so long that eventually your status quo catches up to you. All right, let's, let's stop here for just a few moments and think about this. Now, in the article, there is, uh, there's a couple of uh, professors who weighed in on the topic and given us a wrong answer. I'm going to tell you right away. Here's an historian. For example, Karen Benjamin found that white schools and greater have greater resources flowed to West Houston while black schools were placed in South Northeast Houston. And she's talking about back in the 1920s and the schools that were, as they were established, including Wheatley and fifth ward. Now that was 1927. All the while schools in relatively integrated areas that didn't fit into the racial zoning plan were shuttered or denied adequate resources. Well, That may have been the case back then. That's not the case today. I don't have any facts and figures before me to argue with her about 1927, but I do know that that is not the case today. These Title I schools receive more money. They have more resources than other schools. More money. They have good, hardworking teachers. They have great staffs. They have great superintendents. So what is the problem? Now, Karen Benjamin goes on to point out that is all about segregation. Residential segregation got baked into the system. You know what? This is an this is, this is example of liberal nonsense, as if segregation is going to cause low performance on standardized tests. Now, I've given you an illustration in the past. You look, at, you look where freedom reigns, and freedom reigns, for example, as people worshipped. Black churches congregate together frequently. Is that wrong? No, <laughs> they like they like to be with people of their own kind or people more like themselves. That's that's what they prefer. I lived in East Texas. I happened to preach at a black church at one point, but I and I happen to know this is exactly how it works. I mean, they they want to do. It. And the white churches, perhaps so. But now when you talk about white churches, they say, "Well, boy, there's something sinful about that." We're we going to do to open up the doors to minorities. You know what? The doors are always open, and every I've never seen a church that the doors are not open to every person who wants to come in. Now, you say, well, I know some people are prejudiced here. That, you know what? There may be a, a case, an isolated case like that here and there, but by and large, people congregate where they want to congregate, and so it's not about, well, the, the schools are segregated. So what is the answer? The answer, according to Karen Benjamin also is that they need more money. Well, more money is not the answer. How do we know it's not the answer? Well, the schools that are getting more money, they're still low performing. Some of the best schools in the in the entire country don't receive as much money as, for example, in Washington, D.C. So what what is happening here? The answer is number one. The minority populations do not have the same value system in the families as majority population, and that's just the matter-of-fact statement. They don't have the value system. That is, they don't have the same values. That is why you have three-quarters of African-American children growing up without fathers in the home. Now, you may say that's the government's fault for stepping in and becoming the father, and I, I agree with that, but that is nevertheless the case the same thing regarding abortion rates. The abortion rates are three times higher in a minority population than they are in a majority population. That's just the fact of the case. The value system is not the same. I'm going to give you a little story sitting before a a Dean of college at Alabama state university, Alabama state university in Montgomery, Alabama is 100% African American. The Dean of the school, a black man, tells this, and he said, you know why that Alabama State University has, for example, an engineering department, but we only we only have about 20 to 25 percent, if I remember the numbers correctly, that are black males, men, black young men that are in the engineering department. And on the other hand, there are about 70 percent women. Now, you might say, okay, what, what about it? Well you look at other colleges, you go to any other college where it's not a a black college, an African American college, and he and he's the one doing the talking here. He said, Do you know what the the numbers are for the engineering departments and other like minded departments departments? Seventy five percent male, twenty five percent female, something roughly about akin there too. Weighted largely, more largely for the males than the females. Now, why is that? Because, because these colleges are cutting out females? No, it's not. Because they are begging females to be a part of it. We think that has to be, that's part of the diversity, equity, and inclusion standards. No. And here's what he said. He said, because the black man, the black male, the young man, do not value an engineering degree. They don't want the engineering degrees. They don't want it. That's what's happening they have a different value system, and until we can understand that, and until we look at that, now is that to say, is that to say, well, okay, uh, they're all bad? No, there are a lot of there are a lot of great people coming out of poor, poverty-stricken neighborhoods, African American community, Hispanic community. But let's face it, the value systems are not the same in as far as education is concerned in many African-American homes. That is just the fact of the case. And it's the same way regarding many Hispanic homes. The system, I mean, the homes themselves do not value education. And we just, we are afraid to speak that way and say it, but that is the obvious case. You might look at any school, just take an elementary school that is dominated, for example, by Hispanics. You know, we hit the education is provided, send homework home, doesn't get done. They're not doing it. They're not studying it at home. They're not reading it at home. They're not reading to the children. The children are not being read to. They come home, they come back with no homework done. They have not learned even the basics of it. Why, why, why is that the case? Well, in many cases, they have fatherless homes and whether, and if the father is there, they don't have the same value system on education as other segments of society. That is not to say they're bad people. It's simply to say they have a different value system. So that's why, in many cases, teachers are working harder than the students. You don't see them reading at home. They don't practice the multiplication tables at home. That is what is occurring in poverty neighborhoods and low-income neighborhoods. And so you're going to find the TEA is not going to be able to fix it by going in there and managing the Houston ISD. This becomes a cultural problem, a cultural problem that goes really to the heart of man. And That's what's taking place in different areas of our country. We'll be back in a moment. Now, in the first segment, we talked pretty sharply about some of the cultural differences and cultural problems that we have in America and subcultural problems that we have in America. And so I want to emphasize and underscore that we're not talking about the inability of minorities to learn. We're not talking about the inability of people to succeed and do great. There are so many people, everything's equal across the board on that. But when the home itself does not value education and educational standards then we can expect to see as they found out in Houston that students are starting from behind. Now I'm going to give you an illustration. And this is not simply to, to talk about myself here. I I tried to rarely talk about myself, but when I, my first son, Seth, and we, I tell you what, when he, he started talking, when he was two and he never stopped, he was just, but he was very sharp, sharper than I am. And I thought, boy, you know what? I'm going to have to channel this young man's mind, this ch- child's mind. So I began sitting down with him and reading to him, having him go over things. I like to study the, the Greek. I try to study the Greek New Testament. So I also ta- taught him some Greek, a little bit of Greek, you know, whether it be the president indicative active after the after the diphthongs and the alphabet and all that kind of thing. Okay, we got some of this. And I thought, boy, he's he's moving ahead. And, you know, by the time he was three and four, he was reading. We had the McGuffey Readers, great reading system. And I had the McGuffey Readers, and I would sit down, and he would read to me, and I would read to him. I'd correct him on the different things. And so, you know, I was learning. I thought, okay, this is helping me because I'm, I'm learning a little bit. You know, by the time he got into kindergarten and first grade, and I did this with my daughter Megan, my son Dan as well. You know, when they got into kindergarten and first grade, well, they, they came out and told me, you know what? <laughs> They didn't pass him on to a higher grade, but they said, you know, he's, he has all of this already. He just, I said, well, you know, I'm just going to push him ahead at home, do the best I can. Now I say that, but I, I, I'm going to tell you, you go to a public school, such as what you have in Wheatley high school. And I'm going to tell you that this is not what the home life is like for most of those children. They are not getting it. They're not going to have parents sitting down reading to them. It's not because I'm better than anybody. It's simply because that's something that they didn't value as I did. And they didn't, they didn't, they're not learning it. And so today in these schools, second and third grade, they're having a hard time, even with the alphabet, the sounds of the alphabet. And you say, well, that's because they come from a Hispanic background, perhaps. Well, maybe so, whatever it may be, but be that as it may, when we get into second and third grade, seven and eight years old, and they still have a hard time with the vowels and the consonants and sounding out letters and sounding out words and having a hard time by the time they get fourth and fifth, well, they are behind. They're coming from behind. What happened? Well, they never got after that in the home. They never, they never did that. And I, I tell you what, I invested a lot of time, a lot of time, with my children doing that kind of thing, because I wanted them to have that. That was my choice. And it was a personal choice of mine and my wife. But you know, you don't find parents doing that frequently today. They may have a, they may have a system of values that have something else that's important to them. That's fine. That's their choice. But let's not say, well, the kids are unable to learn. No, they're, they're able to learn. But if they're by the time they're six and seven years old and they haven't started reading, they haven't started putting things together, they're behind. And they're behind because of what goes on in the home. And I'm going to tell you something else that goes on in the, many of these homes. They have a mother who's maybe working, uh, no father in the home. She may be working a couple of jobs. The children are being babysat by the television and or a telephone. And that's what's happening. They're not learning these things. So what's happening in the Houston ISD is indicative of what's going on across the country as far as test scores are concerned. I'm going to tell you another thing. Here's what's happening in many public schools. I remember I was in East Texas teaching. And my first year teaching, and I I was taking a daily grade. And the daily grades, the grading period came up. And about 25 to 30% of my students were failing. They had a 60-something point average. Anything below 70 was failing. So they'd be ranging from anywhere but the 20s all the way up to the 60s. And the administration said, uh, no, 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 you can't do that. You have to have no more than 10% failing. What? Well, what does that mean? Well, that means you've got to go change your grades. <laughs> I said, well, they're not performing. They're not. They come in here. They don't care. They don't have attention spans long enough to sit and listen to a lesson, as some of them do. I may have been a boring teacher. I don't know, but they don't have the attention span. They didn't want to. They come in. They want to. They fool around. Doesn't matter. You've got to have so many passions. So what? So what do teachers do? Well, you're going to pass them on. They may be scoring in the fifties, and so well. And I felt like Mr. Potter in uh, "It's a Wonderful Life." You know, uh, he passes and. Uh, he doesn't pass, and she passes, and she doesn't pass. And, you know, that that's what you do, and that's what has to be done. Now, that's reality, and that's what's going on in all of our public system. Now, I ask you, is that merit-based? No, it is not. No, it's not. We are, we are fostering not meritocracy. We are fostering, basically, it's educational socialism, and that's what's happening. So thinking about education and some of these things. Now I have a lot more to say about education. We need to move on to, I want to talk about ESG on this program. Before I do that, I want you to go to Patriotic Pulpit. You'll find it on Amazon Music app on your phone. You can also find it on other apps as well, uh, Spotify. And uh, you can go there and listen to the program. The program is going to be put up, uh, every week is put up, and you you may Uh, go there and find the show. You may read articles that are right on these topics and many more, and that you can find those on the news talk 1290 website, news dot 1290.com website and articles dealing with these topics, many others and, and the staff here at news talk 1290, write A lot of great articles about local news and things. And I tend to focus upon more what's happening in the country as a whole or the state as a whole. But Those are my articles. Now I do have a website, American Liberty with Bill Lockwood, and you can go there and you can donate if you wish to do so. There's the donate button there. So that's how you get in touch with my material. But one more, and that is the Iowa Park COC, that stands for Church of Christ, Iowa Park, all one word, iowaparkcoc.org. And you can find articles, sermons that are preached, and you can find it across the board, everything that I say. And uh, you may go there and critique it if you wish. So uh, that's how you find my material. So we'll be back in just a moment. I promised I would talk about ESG. This is from the Reuters news service. And it tells us last March, the U S securities and exchange commission, the sec unveiled plans to enhance and standardize climate related disclosures for investors as part of a growing awareness of the importance of environmental social, and governance, that's the ESG, issues among public companies. Continuing, the new disclosure rules would require listed companies to not only disclose risks that are reasonably likely to have a material impact on the business results of operations or financial condition, but also to disclose information about its direct greenhouse gas emissions and indirect emissions from purchased electricity or other forms of energy, as well as certain types of GHG that would be greenhouse gas emissions from upstream and downstream activities in its value chain. The news agency also noted, however, that given the Supreme Court's decision in June, and that was West Virginia versus EPA, that limited the federal regulation of power plant emissions, the timeline for final rules have been pushed back. That's pretty important to note. The Supreme Court says, no, the federal government can't take over all of these things and we're going to limit the federal power of regulation. So ESG rules are being pushed back. Nevertheless, the news agency assures us that most investors support the core tenets of the new disclosure rules. So many therefore expect the new rules to be finalized and an implementation process will be started. So ESG, that will be The companies must list with if they're going to be listed on the Securities and Exchange Commission, they must list how they are fighting greenhouse gas. They must list how they're friendly to the environment as well as social and government governance. And we'll talk about that right now. So Investopedia, what is ESG exactly? Investopedia tells us following that it is environmental, social and governance governance. Investing refers to a set of standards for a company's behavior used by socially conscious investors to screen potential investments. All right. So environmental criteria, consider how a company safeguards the environment, including corporate policies addressing climate change, for example. So if you're going to have a good score for the SEC and people are going to invest in it, They're going to give you a a thumbs up rating if you show that you are actually investing in how to stop climate change. Social criteria examines how it manages relationships with employees, suppliers, customers and communities where it operates. But let's break it down just a little bit. What does that mean? Basically, it means what? Okay. how many how many homosexuals are you going to hire? Uh, How many women do you have on staff? How many How many minorities do you have compared to the white majority? What is your breakdown demographically as well as the sexual preferences that you have on on staff? That's what they want to know. That's the social criteria. And governance deals with the company's leadership, executive pay, audits, internal control, shareholders' rights. So values such as racial and gender diversity in the workplace – This is added to climate change impact, and it rounds out this politically correct agenda. I've had Tom DeWeese on the program just dozens of times. He has the American Policy Center, and I urge you to go to the American Policy Center. He explains all of this very well, but in a paragraph that he published in January of this year, he said, what ESGs do in real life as opposed to sick and twisted fairy tales for the ignorant, is value companies by their perverted reality that is taking down any and all moral absolutes and promoting our world to a dystopia of disease, immorality, and pure evil. Now, why does he call it pure evil? I want you to think carefully about this for just a moment. By restricting investment in production of oil and gas by Western producers, that is ESG's, you're going to have a blacklist, a send list. You can't. We're not going to give the thumbs up rating to an oil company because boy, they're harming the environment. So we're going to we're going to give them the thumbs down rating. So ESG increases the market power of non-Western producers. That is, we're not going to have. So let's say let's say you take your money to Edward Jones or to some other investment company, and they're going to invest, but they're going to invest in companies, and and the brokers are going to look at, okay, do they have a a good ESG rating and this ESG rating is based upon, well, does, does BlackRock, for example, where you can put your money and you can get a good rate of return, does it have a good ESG rating? Well, BlackRock does because BlackRock, boy, I mean, they're all about the environment. They're all about social justice. They're all about the politically correct nonsense that is going around. So they're going to have a good, good rating. That's so what happens? Well, the oil companies, oil-based companies, the coal producers, they're going to be demonized. They're not going to have an ESG rating because they're politically incorrect. Just take for example, Elon Musk, the Tesla corporation, the Tesla cars that he produces. Do you think Elon Musk has a good ESG rating? Well, that might he might be environmentally proficient. He might be environmentally safe, and his cars might be. Oh, no, e- Elon Musk is not going to have a good rating because he is for freedom. He has tweaked the noses of the liberals by opening up Twitter and showing that Twitter has absolutely crushed conservative talk on their platform. And he is he has—he a black mark by his name. He's not going to have an ESG rating, and that's, and that's exactly what's happened. They're not going to give him one. So they don't want companies, they don't want you to go to a company that's an investment company and put your money into a Tesla at all. Because after all... Elon Musk is not, he's not about greenhouse gas emissions. He's not about wind energy and about getting us off of these different things. And he's about conservatism and freedom. So no, he's going to have a bad rating. So that's what's happened. So ESG increases the market power, therefore, of non-Western producers. You remember, for example, Joe Biden telling the, the young girl, I guarantee you that you're going, we're going to get off of an oil-based economy and coal-based. We're going to erase it all. There's zero emissions. Zero emissions. That's what it's all about. All right. Are we going to be able to function without gasoline, without oil-based products, without petroleum-based products? No, we're not going to. So what have we just done? We have just empowered non-Western producers. We have just we have just given Vladimir Putin. We have given him the corner on the market. We have weaponized his energy supply. Net zero, the carbon emissions, net zero, that's the holy grail of ESG, has turned out to be Russia's most potent ally, quoted by Deweese. Now that's exactly what's happening. This is why Tom Zitron, who writes in um, he writes in the Epic Times, and this is why Tom Zitron calls ESG and the ESG grading system stealth socialism, because it allows the central government itself to do the central planning without having to publicly acknowledge such and deal with the unpleasant repercussions of property confiscation. Central planning to bring America down to the level of dependent, non-wealthy nations. China's building two coal-fired plants per week. And we are saying we're going to we're going to get off of it. We're going to get off the oil base by 2035. What is this about? It's about bringing everybody down to a poverty level. We'll be back in a moment. So what is ESG as far as its origin is concerned? Where where are its origins? Where did this come, come from? Well, the concept was originally developed, as you might have guessed it, by the United Nations Environmental Program financial initiative, two decades ago, two decades ago, that would put it way back yonder, as a way to implement sustainable development goals through its principles of responsible investing. In other words, the United Nations via ESG tells you what is moral and what is immoral. You know, this is to me alarming we're going to cast out biblical ethics. Incidentally, the biblical ethic includes that God made the earth and everything in it for man to manage. That's Genesis chapter 1. And to oversee Genesis one thirty and 31. But we're casting out any kind of ethic, what is right and wrong and freedom, casting all of that away with ESG. And instead, we're defining or or the United Nations is is defining what is moral and what is not moral. And what is immoral is carbon-based emissions. That's immoral. And that's why the Democrats and many Republicans as well, they sound like preachers just like I am. They they sound like a preacher on the subject. They get on and thump the pulpit all the time about it. That's what's happening here. You know, it's John Kerry. What a traitor this man is. He calls, and he's, he's one of those self-anointed individuals. He's a self-anointed socialist elitist. And he runs. He helps, helps run things like the United Nations. He, he calls the select group of human beings. That's what he called them, the select group of human beings. We've got to decide for you how you invest your money and your future. How do you like that? We, direct quote. We select group of human beings will decide how you can control the future or how you control your money, how you spend your money. We select group of human beings. i tell you what you talk about arrogance, arrogance, gone to seed. These guys, they, they're running the world. They think they're going to run everybody and they're going to run us into the ground. Now to get the idea, consider what is called sin stocks. I like this Vivek Ramaswamy. I, I tell you what, by the way, he's running for president. Let me stop here. He's running for president. I like the man. He's great. He's, a, he's an entrepreneur. He's a freedom lover. If you, if you want to support someone, he's a good man to support. Vivek Ramaswamy, you can read about him. He's got a couple books published. One of them I read last fall. It was called Woke Inc. Woke Inc. And it is absolutely great. So he tells us, okay, here's the idea. There are some, some stocks that are called sin stocks. These would be stocks that ESG investors would practice to avoid, such as businesses and industries that are considered unethical, immoral, unsavory. Historically, sin stocks used to be alcohol, gambling, tobacco. Now, of course, it's going to be weapons, oil-based, carbon-based, or if you're just a conservative like Elon Musk, you'll you'll be having, you'll be, he's the head of a sin stock. So sin stocks today are defined by government force. I want you to think communism and socialism here includes any investment in any oil or coal production. Gun manufacturers, sin stock. Companies are pressured to cave the socialistic criteria by submitting reports to them that they foster the green agenda, how they've met racial quotas, how they furthered the war against sexism. And all, all of this is going on right under our noses. It's socialism in the corporate world. Zitron, that's a writer, Zitron, in Epic Times said, in a sense, ESG is a novel and brilliant way to place private corporations under the yoke of government. No longer would governments have to deal with having to pay shareholders a fair price. They wouldn't have to use the threat of physical violence to coerce managers to do their bidding the supporters of esg merely had to bully companies to adopting policies that destroyed shareholder value by psychologically manipulating employees shareholders and the public into believing that these activities were virtuous that's called propaganda let me just boil it down this propaganda and that's what's going on the green energy stuff is propaganda it is absolutely unscientific and i am i am happy to sit here and talk with anybody about it, that this is, this is something that is not science. It is simply socialist propaganda as a way to derail American freedom. Well, what are the results of ESG? Vivek Ramaswamy states ESG investing is not pointless to the socialist in charge like John Kerry. He said it's just that by design it's supposed to be relatively less profitable. You're not going to make as much money. You're going to be poorer. But we feel good about it because we promote the new earth ethic, and that replaces biblical ethics. To be specific, BlackRock's ESG-screened S&P 500 lost 22.2% of its value. The S&P 500 Energy Sector Index rose 54%. You see, all of this is linked. BlackRock loses that kind of money, but that's, that's what's going to happen. A 2020 study by Boston College Center for Retirement Research found that ESG investing reduced pensioners' returns by 07 to 0.9% per year. That's from Boston College Retirement Research Center. And with much of the difference attributable to higher management fees for ESG funds. Columbia University or the London School of Economics. They found that ESG funds appear to underperform financially relative to other funds within the same asset manager and year per year, and they charge higher fees. ESG funds have worse track records for compliance with labor and environmental laws relative to portfolio firms held by non ESG funds managed by the same financial institutions. Now, the same is true. Regarding in, a, in a multiple other studies, such as University of North Carolina studied it, the University of Iowa studied it, ESG will make America poor, it will make Americans poor and dependent upon foreign nations. But after all, that's the plan, that's the goal, to make us dependent. You know, the last few minutes, I want to talk about one other thing real quickly. You know, think about how much time people waste on social media. I thought this was stunning. Daily social media use averages 147 minutes per day, according to Statista. That's what Lawrence Wilson writes in the Epic Times. That's two and a third hours. Two and a third hours average. That's hard to believe. American teens spent much more time then that, using social media apps in 2021, according to the study by Common Sense Media, for teenagers, the average screen entertainment time was more than eight and a half hours. For tweens, it was five and a half hours. G- get that. Average screen entertainment time more than eight and a half hours. And five and a half hours. This is what's happening with, with people today and the young people today. Now, the entire lesson is not simply that China steals the data, and that's what's going on in Congress and all across the news today. But I want to appeal in the last minute to something else. It pro- it reduces our productivity. Specifically, I want you to think about studying the Bible. The sad modern commentary on America is not only that we lack a work ethic anymore, which the Bible teaches, if a man doesn't work, neither let him eat, but that that lack applies to a study of God's Word. Addiction to social media spells the end of any real engagement with biblical texts in any meaningful way or even deep thinking, for that matter. Two and a half hours, up to five and a half hours on social media waste so much time that could be used for productive Bible study. Not only has social media addiction supplanted Bible study, most of the Bible that modern people receive is in very small nuggets of information provided by electronic Facebook and Twitter posts. It's like bumper sticker Christianity. Ladies and gentlemen, we're not going to learn the principles of the Bible and God's Word by little snippets and bumper stickers. That's not how it's going to be done. And we we are robbing ourselves of any ability to deep think, as well as sit and listen to anybody talk about biblical principles or even political principles for more than ten minutes and then our, our attention's off somewhere else. We just and if you don't think this is an addic- addiction, you go to a public school and you confiscate the phones, and you'll find out real quick that they are absolutely going to go crazy. The students themselves, I'm telling you, the students themselves try to hide the phones when they go into juvenile detention. Hide it on their body somewhere. You talk about an addiction. We need to get off the social media addiction.